a good idea, the woman said. They waited with a prickly feeling at the backs of their necks for the clock to strike midnight. But the son was still too scared to come out. We love stories! It's time for the apple seat, filled with stories for you and your family. All kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. I'm Sam Payne, your host, and it's going to be a great hour today. We've got a Jack tale for you called The Princess on the Glass Hill by Ruth Halpern. You know Jack tales if you've heard Jack and the Beanstalk, or really any story with the hero Jack at the center of it, then you know what we're talking about. Today's Jack tale will hit all of the story beats we love to find in both fairy tales and Jack tales. There'll be a poor farmer, a mysterious knight, a princess, and of course, again, our hero Jack, simple Jack, who winds up with luck and with his wits winning the day. Of course, that won't be all either. We'll enjoy a lesson in humility from Kirk Waller with a story called Bigger, Badder, Better. Going to hear a classic a Bill Greenfield tale called Bill Greenfield and the Champion Wrestler. Bill Greenfield, that classic tall tale character from the Adirondack Mountains. Joseph Bruchak will bring that story to you. And we'll hear from Mitch Weiss and Martha Hamilton a story called Why the Sun Comes Up When the Rooster Crows. You won't want to miss a single word of the great stories that we're going to bring you today. And to introduce you to the first story that we're going to hear today, I'm pleased to be joined in the studio by one of our assistant producers, Alyssa Mingorance. Alyssa, it's great to have you with me. Hi, Sam. I always love being here. You know, we're going to hear a Kirk Waller story today. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about Bigger, Badder, Better. Yeah, so in this story, there's a man in his village who is bigger, badder, and better than everyone else, <laughs> right? Um, and, you know, he feels he feels pretty comfortable. He feels pretty kind of kind of cocky about his his station in life right now and his wife is always telling him you know there's always someone out there who's probably even bigger even badder and even better you know maybe you should keep your ego in check um and uh this story is about how he follows that advice yeah yeah (laughs) well kirk waller is a delight you're gonna love this story bigger badder better on the apple seed Once, in a small African village, there was a very big man. He was the biggest and strongest man in the entire village. He was so strong that even his muscles had muscles. He could chop down one tree, a single tree with one whack. He would chop up the wood, and there'd be enough wood for the entire village, just like that. He could carry two buffalo, one on each shoulder. He would walk around the village, flexing his muscles, telling all the people his name. Bigger, badder, better. Baby, that's my name. Bigger, badder, better. Ask me again, I'll tell you the same thing. And all the children from all around the village would come and gather and say, Bigger, badder, better. Bigger, badder, better. Bigger, badder, better. Now the wife of Bigger, Badder, Better would always remind him, Now, you may be big and bad, and I like your muscles, too. 
but you better be careful, because one of these days, you're going to meet somebody who's bigger and stronger than you. Well, that might be the case, but it won't be today. <laughs> and as bigger, badder, better went off through the village, performing great feats of strength, his wife went into the bush to fetch some water. And she had to travel far, and she found a well that was dug very deep into the ground. And it was so deep that the bucket was so far down in the well that she could barely pull up the bucket of water. And though she pulled and she pulled and she pulled, she could not get the bucket up out of the well. Finally, she had to give up and go back home with no water. A woman met her on the pathway, and she said, why do you come from the well with no water in your calabash? I tried, but the well is so deep. The bucket is so heavy. I'm going home to fetch my husband. He can pull up the bucket of water. She said, oh, oh, oh do not bother him. I will call my son. And she called to a little boy, no bigger than four, maybe five years old. And he put his hand on the rope, and with one pull, the bucket came out of the water. And the wife of Bigger, Badder, Better said, he's strong. Oh, no, 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 said his mother. That is nothing. You should see his father, my husband. Oh, he is a man among men, and he is the strongest of all. And then the wife of Bigger, Badder, Better said, my husband would want to meet him. So when she got home that afternoon, she told Bigger, Badder, Better all about the well and the little boy and the woman that she met and how there was even one even stronger than himself. Well, we must go and meet this man among men, and we will see who is strongest. So the next day, at the very same time, they went out where the well was, and they found the woman again. And Bigger Badder Better said, I must meet this, this man among men who is supposed to be stronger than any. I am strongest of all, and I will show you, and I will show him. I don't think that's such a good idea, the woman said. You see, my, my husband doesn't take very kind to strangers. Perhaps some other time. Oh, I understand. Your husband is scared. <laughs> very well. If you insist, I will take you to meet him. But beware, he is very strong. So when they got to the house, there was this large chair in the middle of the room. And Bigger, Badder, Better went straight for the chair. The woman stopped and says, oh, no, 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 that is my husband's favorite chair. Why don't you sit here on this stool? That is for the guest. Bigger, Badder, Better sat down. I like this chair. I think I'll stay right where I am. 
And then just as he finished speaking, they heard this sound coming through the jungle. It sounded something like boom, boom, boom. And then it got closer. Boom, boom, boom. And then it got louder. Boom, boom, boom. And before they knew it, the door swung open, fell off its hinges, and filling up the entire doorway was the largest man that Bigger, Badder, Better had ever seen in his entire life. I am man among men, and who sits in my chair? A man among men. That's my name. Man among men. I stick it, I'll tell you the same thing. And without even thinking, Bigger, Badder, Better rose to his feet and took off. Didn't even bother going out the door, went right through the wall. He ran and he ran and he ran through the bush, ran like the wind, ran like whoosh, and he was gone. But Man Among Men was right on his heels. They ran through the bush, over hills, and through trees, and through rocks, until he came to a clearing. And Bigger, Badder, Better saw a man sitting, reposed on the ground. And even sitting, he was larger than Bigger, Badder, Better. Oh, oh, you must, you must, you must hide me. You must hide me. Uh, there was a man, a man among men, strongest man I've ever seen in my whole life. He is after me. Please hide me. And this giant of a man said, I will hide you. Come behind me. Who is this that you say is strong? And just at that moment, man among men came through the clearing. I am man among men, and he came into my house. Give him to me. And the giant rose to his feet, taller than a tree, larger than a house. He said, You want him? Come get him. I'm giant above all. That's my name. Giant above all. I see again, I'll tell you the same And so man among men and giant above all faced one another. They ran towards each other, and when they met, it was like lightning and thunder crashing in the sky, their arms and legs grappling together, wrestling and fighting, toppling trees, flattening hills, rolled all through the day, all through the night, up into the sky to see who was the strongest of all. Every once in a while, they would rest and take a breath, and then they would fight again to see who was the strongest of all. And even now, to this day, when you see the lightning flashing across the sky and you hear the thunder rolling, that is man among men and giant above all, fighting to see who truly is the strongest of all. Back on Earth, bigger, badder, better, went to his village. Different, 
than when he had left that day. The children gathered around him and tried to sing his song. Bigger, bad, bad. Bigger, bad, better. No, 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 no. Please, do not call me bigger, badder, better. From this day on, call me just another man. That is the day that he learned humility and respect for all men. Bigger, badder, better. A story told for you by Kirk Waller. Happy to bring it to you here on the Apple Seed. I've been listening to it with Alyssa Mingorance. And, you know, there is a, a, a maybe a tough moment in a person's life when they come to realize that they're just like everybody else. <laughs> yep. Yeah, you know, it reminds me of this time when I was like in elementary school and I remember I was taking this jazz class and I was like, clearly the best one in this jazz class and I knew it you know I could tell and then uh, my teacher came to me and was like oh you know I think you might be ready for the next level up and I was like oh okay and so I get there and suddenly I'm the worst one in the class <laughs> you know and uh, in talking through it with my sister and all these new feelings I was having about yeah. that she was like you know this is actually a great learning experience yeah. you know it's actually a great thing to kind of be the worst one in the room at something because it means <laughs> instead of just one teacher you now have 20 teachers and yeah. you have lots of opportunities to grow and learn and gather inspiration from. So I love this story because it always takes me back to being in that jazz class and all of a sudden being like, hold on, I kind of suck at this right now. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you find yourself going through that fire of learning mm -hmm. that you're, you know, that you're just like everybody else, really. Yeah. But then on the other side of that is, you know, the word that Kirk Waller uses is humility, right? But yeah. there's a kind of perception of yourself as one of many who are together a kind of team, you know, and you, yeah. you, 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 you kind of get reborn into a new respect for absolutely. the people around you, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's a pleasure to hear that story from Kirk Waller. And there's a lot more coming up on The Appleseed. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure to have you with us on today's episode of The Appleseed. A moment ago, you heard Bigger, Badder, Better by Kirk Waller. And in just a bit, you're going to hear The Princess on the Glass Hill, a jack tale told for you by Ruth Alpern. But first, how about a conversation with a friend? Great stories come into our lives in so many ways, through the great books that we come to love, through the films and television that we see, through the radio that we listen to, of course, and also through great food memories. Food can be a key that unlocks memories filled with story, and sharing those stories with friends is one of the things that we love to do here on The Appleseed. Makes our mouths water just a little <laughs> bit, and I'm thrilled to have in the studio with me Lisa Valentine-Clark, host of of The Lisa Show. You're going to want to look up The Lisa Show podcast. Just Google it and you'll find it for all kinds of great stuff just about every day from Lisa and her co-host, Richie. Lisa, it's great to have you with me. Oh, it's so great to be here. Thanks for having me. I, I, I mean, I'm especially excited to talk a little bit about food. I oh, love, yeah. You know, I love food <laughs> memories. Food memories. You, yes. You, one of the things about food memories is you come across an ingredient or a smell mm -hmm. or a 
something that you eat at a restaurant or something, and it's just like a zip file. I mean, yes. you, you, you know, you you touch that that smell or that taste, and it just opens up a memory that's a lot bigger than the food itself. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and we're going to talk food today. Oh we? yes, let's talk about food. You know, um, my mom was a good cook growing up and would make certain dishes, and it, it was interesting because she would tell us where the recipes came from if yeah. they had significance. And one thing that she made that I found was different than what we ate at my friends' houses, or none of my other friends knew what this was, um, was dulce de leche. Dulce de leche. <laughs> and my mom would, you know, peel off the the wrapper from yeah. a sweetened condensed milk can, you know, yeah. usually a couple at a time, put it in her high pressure cooker while it would rattle away for hours. And yeah. I was always a little nervous that it was going to explode. I'm not going to be, you know, like, right. I don't think we're. You're supposed to put cans of food. Yeah. Is it going to explode? Because it little, rattled. There's a little danger. In the, in the anticipation. Exactly. <laughs> and then when we would open it up to find it, it was just, you know, nice and brown, caramelized, you know, gooey, just thick. Not a caramel, but not soft. You know, it was dulce de leche. Yeah. And she would make a jelly roll, a, a really thin little cake. And and I would watch her as a as a as a little girl put it on a tea towel and have to do work it as soon as it got out of the oven because it had to be really warm and she would spread the prepared dulce de leche on it and then roll it up with the tea towel and then slice it like a Yule log cake yeah. and sprinkle it with a little powdered sugar and I loved it and she would say this is from your grandma Valentine my dad's mom be um, they used to eat it in Argentina when they lived in Argentina and that's just kind of all I knew when I was in when I w- had um was growing up yeah you know I knew that my grandma had lived in Argentina and Mexico and that they ate this wonderful thing and it was the best thing in the whole world <laughs> that's all I knew <laughs> now when I came to college I had the opportunity to live quite near my grandma Valentine and mm-hmm. I got to know her in a in a better way and you know when you're a little kid and you sort of take your grandparents for granted they're just there and you just take them for, you know, they're just my yeah. grandma and grandpa or whatever, and you just don't know. And when I went to college, I experienced what a lot of people do, like that homesickness, right? Yeah. And and I was so excited to be independent and to be on my own. But I found myself really liking those Sunday afternoons when I could drop by Grandma Valentine's oh, yeah. house. And she would make dulce de leche because <laughs> that's what she made. And she knew it was a great treat. And she'd either make it in a jelly roll or more often we would sit around and talk and she would spread it between two vanilla wafer cookies, vanilla wafer wafers and then roll the edges in coconut and she'd say you know this is this is she's like this is sort of the americanized version of what we did in argentina of an alfajor right yes exactly and and then she would teach me and tell me stories about argentina and tell me stories about what it was like she was born and raised in colonial juarez mexico and um she didn't leave i mean when she was 18 then she went to the big city of buenos aires (laughs) and got a job and and then she brought out the stories, the pictures, and the clothes, because she would work in an office building. She dressed up. I mean, yeah. dressed to the nines. Clothes that were like designer. And she'd send money back. And then after that, she decided to um, go to um, BYU and go back up to the states and things. But this whole life that she had, this whole reference point, yeah. was another world. And I got to know her on a different 
in a different way. And somehow that taste of making those dulce de leche cookies and being able to eat it was simultaneously transported me back to the comforts of my childhood home Mm. in Nebraska, of all places, (laughs) as I heard these stories about my grandmother. And she would talk about not only herself, but her parents, who I didn't know very well. Um, But I do remember her father, Ernest Young, and how he, when I I barely remembered him, he lived to be 95. Mm. But when I was a little girl, the thing that I remembered about him is that when we went over to his house, he would always have a box of Nilla wafer cookies (laughs) and give me one. So here's the taste of the memory that I have of my great-grandfather, the dulce of... Um, that reminds me not only of my childhood home, but also my grandmother, Valentine, yeah. and also these stories. And it's interesting, as I've grown older, dulce de leche, which was, people didn't know what that was, yeah. is now a hot flavor. Sure. And yeah. everybody <laughs> knows. And you yeah. can buy it ready-made right. at the local grocery store. You don't have to boil sweet and condensed <laughs> you know, cans and hope your house doesn't explode. Right. <laughs> or, you know, I would call my mom, it's been in there a long time, but yeah. I opened it up and it wasn't dark. You know, what do I, was it too long? Not enough. Um, and so it's become more and more common and yeah. had a co- common language. And now, you know, my grandmother has since passed. Yeah. You know, she lived to almost 98 years old. And this woman who was such a mystery when I was younger is now a great influence mm. in my life. I didn't know that I would grow up and have so many similar experiences yeah. to her. And, um, and and most notably and recently, she was widowed at a, at a young age. And now I'm widowed at a young mm. age, almost yeah. the exact same age, wow. to be honest. And we had had children a similar age, had a light, you know, had both married these professors and mm. and 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 our lives have taken a similar trajectory and so now you know dulce de leche to me is conversations with my yeah. grandmother that I had no idea that I would internalize in such a way yeah. um for the rest of my life so to me it's more than a dessert <laughs> it's more than just a simple recipe but it is really an an inner tie to yeah. my family yeah I, I I think about that story that you tell of sitting with your grandmother and there there's something about having a little food mm-hmm. in front of you that you sort of have to prepare as you to, yeah. to eat right that there's there are some little steps that you mm-hmm. go through you take the cookies and you spread the dulce de leche and yep. you roll it in the coconut and 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 that kind of preparing food together yeah. really opens the door to rich conversation, right? Mm-hmm. There's a there's a kind of formality to just sitting down across from each yeah. other and saying, tell me about your life. Exactly. That, that sometimes stifles things, you know. Mm-hmm. But if you've got a little something to work on together and a little something to chew on together, yes. you know, uh, the stories flow. What a, what a pleasure yeah. to, to, to hear about the place that Dulce de Leche holds in your life and in your memory. Lisa, thanks for joining me. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Great stories come into our lives in so many ways. What a pleasure to chat with Lisa Valentine Clark. We'll be sure to have her back. Coming up, The Princess on the Glass Hill, a jack tale told for you by Ruth Halpern. I'm Sam Payne. Stick around. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. 
It's such a pleasure for me to be with you on this hour of the Appleseed, bringing you these tales. A moment ago, you heard a conversation with Lisa Valentine Clark about dulce de leche. And at the top of the hour, you heard a story from Kirk Waller called Bigger, Badder, Better. Up next, a Jack tale. Jack tales. You know, there are hundreds of them, all about the hero Jack, like the Jack in Jack and the Beanstalk, a simple guy who winds up winning the day through some wits and good luck, and uh, that's what's going to happen in this next story. It's called The Princess on the Glass Hill, and it's a story told for you by Ruth Halpern. We're happy to bring it to you here on The Appleseed. Once upon a time, in Norway, there lived a farmer who had three sons. The youngest one was Jack. And as in so many stories, Jack was considered quite a fool. Nobody trusted him with anything. He was really just good for tending the sheep and the goats and staying out of everybody's way. Now in those days, on New Year's Eve, people sat by their fires. They waited and they watched for the new year to arrive. But on one particular New Year's Eve, instead of the silent turning of the moon, in that farmhouse, they heard a rumble like thunder. They heard the ground shaking with the sound of hoofbeats louder than they'd ever heard before. Galloping, galloping out in the field, followed by this. Munching noises. Well, the farmer sent his oldest son out to the field to see what could be going on out there. And in the dark New Year's Eve starlight, that boy saw the shadow of some kind of creature. He heard the chomping of those teeth and the thunder of those hooves. He didn't figure out what it was. He just ran back in the house, dove under the bed, and wouldn't come out. Next morning, that field had been nibbled down to a nub. There wasn't a blade of grass standing. Whatever this creature was had left hoof prints the size of saucers in the earth. Well, that meant the farmer had no hay that year. Next New Year's Eve, he was determined to protect his field. And sure enough, at midnight, again, they heard the thunder of hoofbeats. They heard the rumble that shook the earth. Followed by... The second son was sent out to see what was going on. And in the darkness, he saw a huge shadowy shape. He could hear the teeth grinding together, and he ran back in the house and dove under the bed, would not come out. Next day, that field was nibbled down to a nub again, not a blade of grass standing. And for another year, the farmer had no hay. Well, on the third year at New Year's, I'm sure you know what happened. The farmer and his sons drew close around that fire. They waited with a prickly feeling at the backs of their necks for the clock to strike midnight. And as it did, they felt the roof shaking. They heard the rafters creaking. And the two older boys dove under the bed. Jack said, I could go take a look. His father said, You, Jack, what good are you? Then again... What do we have to lose? And he sent Jack out to take a look. Now Jack walked out to the middle of that field. He saw where the ground was all torn up by the hoofs of galloping something. And he heard the... And he went closer. 
close enough to be able to see in the faint starlight an enormous horse, copper-colored, with a shining copper mane, and lying in a heap on the ground next to it, a copper-colored saddle, and a copper bridle, and a full suit of copper armor. Well, Jack went over to that copper bridle, and as the horse stood there grazing, he slipped the bridle over its nose and grabbed the reins. And as soon as he did that, the horse became completely peaceful and followed wherever he led. So he led the horse around to an old fallen-down sheep shed at the back part of the farm, and he stabled it in there. The farmer was delighted the next morning to see his whole hayfield standing, delighted until midnight, when once again they heard... And once again, the sound of <coughs> roared through the night. Without a word, Jack went out to see what was going on. And that night, he saw a horse even bigger than the night before. He saw a horse who had galloped five times around the field, leaving big piles of dirt wherever its feet had torn up the earth. But it was grazing now, quietly, beside a heap of armor and a saddle and a bridle, and I bet you know what color they were. Silver-colored silver horse, silver-colored armor, and Jack took that bridle, slipped it over the silver horse's head, and led it off to the sheep shed and stabled it there. Once again the farmer was amazed and delighted. Jack, of all people, had protected his hayfield. Until midnight. And this time they thought an earthquake was going to shake their house down to its foundation. The two boys dove under the bed, and so did their father. And Jack went out to see what was going on. There in the starlight, shimmering, was the biggest horse he'd ever seen. It gleamed a particularly beautiful shade of... Gold. And he captured that horse with its golden bridle, and he took its golden saddle and its golden armor, and led it over to the sheep shed where he stabled it. Now, he didn't tell anyone about these things because no one would have believed him anyway. No one ever took his word for anything. The very next week, when the king invited all the people in the kingdom to come and see his new construction, Jack was not invited. You see, the king had a daughter, a princess, and he very much wanted to see that princess married. She, on the other hand, was not interested in this proposition. She had made an arrangement with her father. She said, Father, we'll hold a contest. We'll hold a contest, and whoever can ride his horse to the top of an enormous glass hill and sweep a golden apple out of my lap, that person is someone I would marry. But if no one can accomplish this, if no one can ride up that glass hill, then I'll go out and seek my own fortune. And so they agreed. This was the new construction, a glass hill as shining and steep as a sheer mountain of ice. At the top was a small chair where the princess sat, golden apples in her lap, waiting, hoping that nobody could ride the hill. Now, of course, the farmer and his sons had no expectation that they would actually enter the contest. They just wanted to go and see it. They wouldn't take Jack with them, though. They didn't want to be seen anywhere with Jack. They left him at home to tend the sheep. And off they went to the castle. Now, word had spread about this contest so that knights and princes and kings from neighboring kingdoms had all arrived on their fastest, sturdiest chargers. They were lined up one after another, ready for the contest. To ride up the glass hill 
swoop the golden apple out of the princess's lap and marry her because, you know, the rumor was she was a pretty woman and extremely funny. This was in short supply in that kingdom in those days. Someone who knew a few good jokes. That was why they came from so far away. That was why they galloped their horses at the foot of that hill, rode as fast as they could towards it, and each horse would plunge up the hill, trying to dig its hoofs into that slippery, slidey glass slope and fail and slide back down in a heap. One after another, knights, princes, kings tried their horses. One after another, they failed and rode off in disgrace. Finally, around sunset, the people were about ready to go home when someone noticed a glimmer, almost like a bonfire burning off in the west where the sun was going down. Everyone turned to look, everyone turned to watch, as an enormous knight came galloping out of the west. He was dressed entirely in copper-colored armor. He had a copper-colored helmet with the helm and the visor closed. And he rode so fast towards the glass hill, he didn't turn to the left to salute the king or to the right to salute the people. He just rode straight at the hill. And his horse didn't slip or slide or falter. It rode straight up that glass hill. The princess herself was intrigued, leaning forward, watching, amazed. She saw the knight begin to rein the horse in, slow it down, and turn it. He didn't even want to make it to the top. She discovered that she wished he would, and when he began to turn his horse away, she reached into her lap and tossed him one of the gold apples. Well, the knight swooped down and swept up the apple, tucked it into a saddlebag, and rode off. Didn't stop didn't greet the king, didn't wait for the princess, just disappeared into the west. The king said, this is most unusual. This contest was supposed to end with a prize. We'll have to continue it for a second day. Perhaps the copper knight will return and claim a second apple, because the princess did have three. All that second day, the dukes, the knights, even a prince or two, challenged their horses to ride up that glass hill. All that second day they failed. But just around sunset, people began pricking up their ears, looking expectantly into the west, waiting to see that copper knight return. But as they stared into the brightness, they saw a flare of light coming out of the west, not like a bonfire, but like a beam of sheer brilliant moonlight. And as it galloped closer and got larger, they saw a knight. A what-colored knight? Silver galloping out of the west. His plumes were the snowy color of moonlight in winter, and his helm and his visor were closed. No one could see who he was, but they could see that his horse was enormously powerful as it galloped up the side of the glass hill, steady, strong, moving towards the top, but when it was about two-thirds of the way up the hill, that night began to rein in the horse, to slow it, to turn it, to turn back. What's going to happen to our hero, Jack? Well, you're going to hear in just a little bit with part two of that story. Happy to have brought you just the first part of Ruth Halpern's tale, The Princess on the Glass Hill. Going to take a quick break, just long enough for a Bill Greenfield story. Bill Greenfield, of course, the classic tall tale character from the Adirondack Mountains. This one's called Bill Greenfield and the Champion Wrestler. And it's told for you by the great storyteller Joseph Bruchak. Happy to bring it to you on the apple seed. 
Bill Greenfield and the Champion Wrestler Now Bill Greenfield was what you would call a powerful man. They say he was the best wrestler ever seen in Saratoga County and it was because he was so incredibly strong. What kept him in such good shape, he'd tell people, was just doing the everyday work around his farm. Take plowing, for example. This was back in the days before tractors. To plow your field, you'd hitch up the old iron plow behind your horse or your ox and then hold on to the reins and the handles of the plow, just like holding on to the handlebars of a bicycle, to guide it. Bill used his ox for his plowing, but that ox was sometimes too slow for Bill. To begin with, Bill got impatient about how long that ox took to come out of its stall in the morning. So he started just picking that ox up over his shoulder and carrying it out to the field to make things go faster. But you know, after that ox was yoked to the plow, it moved even slower yet and Bill would have to push on the plow to hurry it up. He'd push so hard the ox would have to trot to keep from being run over by the plow. One day Bill just got so fed up with holding back for that ox that he unyoked it and started plowing without it. Now word eventually got out around the state that Bill Greenfield was quite a wrestler and that no man had ever been able to throw him. There was a famous wrestler who lived in Syracuse and he come looking for Bill to challenge him to a match. But he lost his way trying to find Bill's home and began looking for someone to give him directions. As chance would have it, the first person he saw was a man plowing his fields. Well, that wrestler leaned against the fence with his mouth open, marveling at the way that man was doing it, plowing without a horse or an ox and just pushing that plow through the rocky soil like a knife through butter. Well, finally, Bill Greenfield took notice of that man and plowed his way over to the fence. Can I help you, stranger? Bill said. Well, said the Syracuse wrestler, taking a deep breath. I'm a champion wrestler, and I've heard there's a man around here named Bill Greenfield who's pretty strong, and I thought I might uh, challenge him to a match. The wrestler looked at the heavy iron plow. But I can see you're a strong man yourself. You must for sure be stronger than him. Bill Greenfield shook his head. No, sir, he said. I'm not stronger than Bill Greenfield. In fact, I can't see any way I could ever beat him in anything. Well, said the Syracuse wrestler, well, then I guess it's Bill Greenfield I should be looking for. Uh, can you tell me which way his house is? Bill Greenfield smiled and lifted up his arm to point. Right down that way, he said. The Syracuse wrestler looked hard at Bill for the arm he was pointing with still held on to that metal plow. Bill was holding it right out at arm's length to point with it. Well, thank you kindly, the Syracuse wrestler said, and then he turned around and walked back the way he came. Bill Greenfield and the Champion Wrestler, a story told for you by Joseph Bruchak. In just a moment, we're going to get back to the rest of the Ruth Halpern story, The Princess on the Glass Hill. But first, we thought we'd bring you a little pourquoi story. Pourquoi stories are so-called because they explain for us in a storytelling fashion why something is the way it is. Pourquoi, the word for why borrowed from the French. This is Mitch Weiss and Martha Hamilton, and the cool thing about Mitch Weiss and Martha Hamilton is they specialize in collecting and telling stories with the idea that people who hear them will be able to tell them themselves. This is, in fact, from a collection of stories called How and Why Stories Kids Can Tell. Here's why the sun comes up when the rooster crows on the apple seed. 
Why the Sun Comes Up When Rooster Crows, a story from China. Long ago, when the world was young, there wasn't just one sun in the sky. There, there were nine. The blazing heat of the sun scorched the land. The earth grew hotter and hotter. Crops shriveled. People began to die. The people tried to think of ways to block the heat of the nine suns. Finally, they decided to ask their best archer to shoot the suns out of the sky. The archer listened to their plan and agreed to help. The next morning before sunrise, he climbed to the top of the highest mountain. As each sun appeared, he strung an arrow. One by one, he shot the suns. Eight arrows soared into the sky. Eight, Eight suns fell to the earth. As the ninth sun watched what happened to her sisters, she grew more and more terrified. She hid behind a mountain so that she wouldn't be pierced by an arrow. At first, the people celebrated their victory. They praised the archer for his skill and rewarded him with great riches. But all too soon, the people realized that they couldn't live without the warmth and heat of the sun. The earth was now freezing cold. Darkness covered the land. People stumbled about trying to see. And still, nothing would grow. The people pleaded with the sun to come out, but no matter what they said, she would not appear. A great meeting was called to decide what to do. We must find someone who can convince the sun that we mean no harm. Perhaps the sun finds it hard to trust people anymore. Maybe an animal might be able to convince the sun to come out. A few people suggested Tiger. They said, Tiger's a powerful animal. His words will be believed by the sun. But Tiger's voice was so loud and sounded so much like a growl that the sun grew even more frightened. One of the village elders spoke up. Perhaps we need an animal that has a soothing voice. Why not ask Oreo? No one has a more beautiful voice than Oreo. Although the sun liked Oreo's singing, she still wouldn't come out. Many other birds tried. But none succeeded. At last, another of the elders suggested Rooster. He argued, It's true that Rooster doesn't sing as beautifully as Oreo, but he's fearless and won't give up. When the people asked Rooster, he didn't hesitate. He strutted to the top of the mountain and called out, ah, ah, ah. But the sun was still too scared to come out. Rooster crowed a second time. A tiny bit of the sun peeked out from behind the mountain. But she was still afraid that she would be shot with an arrow. Then Rooster crowed a third time. <coughs> Finally, the sun was convinced that it was safe. Her fear vanished, and she came out from behind the mountain and shone in her full glory. The people cheered. They were so happy that they had finally coaxed the sun out. The sun was pleased with their reaction. She was also grateful to Rooster for finally convincing her to come out. To reward him, she took a bit of red out of the morning sky, made it into the shape of a comb, and placed it on top of Rooster's head. To this day, Rooster is very proud that he saved the world. If you watch him in the barnyard, you'll see that he struts about with his chest puffed out and that bright red comb on his head. And every morning, right after Rooster Crows, <coughs> the sun soon appears.
Why the Sun Comes Up When the Rooster Crows, a story told for you by Mitch Weiss and Martha Hamilton, from a collection of stories designed to help kids learn stories that they can tell. So there's one for you to learn and tell whenever you have a chance to tell a story next. Coming up, we've got the remainder of the Ruth Halpern story, The Princess on the Glass Hill. Now, in this story, of course, when we left off, princes, knights, and kings had tried to ride their horses up the glass hill to no avail. And that, of course, is when a mysterious knight dressed in silver armor makes it two-thirds up the hill before he deliberately turns around. Will anyone ever make it up the glass hill? We've got to find out together now with Ruth Halpern in The Princess on the Glass Hill. The rest of the story here on The Appleseed. princess couldn't stand it. She reached into her lap again, pulled out another golden apple, and rolled it down the hill to the knight, who swept it up and put it in his saddlebag. But he didn't slow down. He didn't stop. He rode off into the west without a word to anyone. So the king had no choice. He decreed that the contest would continue one more day. The princess couldn't wait for it to be over, for her to have a chance to go out to seek her fortune or perhaps, to find out who that copper knight was, and who that silver knight was, and where they had gone, each of them, with their trophies. Well, on the third day, the knights had all gone home. Every one of the princes had given up. There were a few dukes left, and some of the villagers who owned a fast horse, each of them tried, one after another, to scale the glass hill. Each of them collapsed and went home. But around sunset, the crowd started getting restless. Every eye was fixed on the west. Every mind was wondering which of the two knights will come back to claim the princess. When that glimmer of light started, everyone pricked up their ears. People were shielding their eyes, looking out into the west, but the light was so bright they had to turn away. As the night galloped closer, it wasn't the bright red of a bonfire or the silvery glow of moonlight that they saw, but a hot gleaming beam of gold as bright as the sun. People had to shield their eyes to see this enormous golden knight galloping across the courtyard and straight up the glass hill. He looked neither to the left nor the right, and he never reined in that horse. Straight up the glass hill to the very top he rode, he leaned down from his saddle and snatched a golden apple, the last one, from the princess's lap. But he didn't stop. He didn't greet the princess at all, just a little quick wave of his hand, and then he tucked the apple into his saddlebag and galloped off down the back side of the hill. No one saw him again. The contest was over, the princess was free, and off she went into the wide world. She traveled to the east, she traveled to the west, she traveled to the north and the south, the cities and the mountains, she met wise men and foolish. She met clever women and brave, but in the end she discovered that the place she wanted to go most of all was her own sweet home. And home she went after three years adventuring, home to the castle, home to the king. They would eat breakfast together, and then each day she'd go out to explore the kingdom to learn about the place she'd come from. And on that very first day of exploring, right around noon when the sun was hot and she was getting hungry, the princess heard a tune a musical sound of flute music more beautiful than anything she'd ever heard. It was like birds singing and water flowing, and she had to follow it. 
she followed it all the way to its source in a shepherd's flute. He was sitting in the shade of a big old oak tree, playing this music on his flute that she couldn't resist. So she sat down nearby and listened for a while. And when the shepherd took out his lunch, she took out hers. And it wasn't long before they were sharing cheese and bread, fresh water, and a few stale jokes. Funny enough, though, to get them both laughing. Funny enough to make them want to have lunch again the next day. And the next. They met for lunch under that tree every day. Until finally the shepherd asked her if she'd care to come over to his house for dinner. Dinner, she thought, could be delicious. She accepted immediately. And that very evening she went to the shepherd's house, where he had baked her goat cheese pizza. And he had made a beautiful salad covered with goat cheese. And to drink they had big tumblers full of sheep's milk. It was a delicious meal, and they laughed even more. Until the shepherd said, It's time for dessert. And he went to a little cupboard in the wall, took out a big bowl of fresh fruit, and brought it to the table. In this bowl there were green apples and red apples, and nestled in among them were three gold apples. Now when the princess saw this, she jumped up from her chair. She said, You thief! You've stolen these golden apples. What did you do with the knights? What's become of them? How did you get hold of these apples? You've got to be a thief. And the shepherd said, Come with me a minute. He took the princess by the hand and led her out the front door and around to the back of the house where there was an old fallen-down sheep shed. And he led her in through the door, holding a candle up high so that she could see a copper-colored horse and a silver horse and a gleaming golden horse all standing in their stalls, munching on straw. Then she understood that this shepherd, who had made her laugh so much, had also won her heart. And that was when they decided to be married. Now she was a dutiful princess, and so she said, I'll have to talk to my father first, but I'd love to. So she went right back to the castle, immediately went up to the king. She said, Father... At last, I found the man I want to marry. The shepherd's son, Jack. Her father didn't say a word. He didn't speak. He didn't have to. He wore a frown as dark as the blackest thundercloud. He stared at the opposite wall as if his eyes could drill holes in it. And finally he said, without even looking at the princess, If you marry that shepherd... You are not my daughter anymore, and you will never set foot under this roof again. Now these were the hardest words the king had ever spoken to her, but she knew she had to make her decision, and she decided to follow her heart. So that very day she went down to the shepherd's hut. That very afternoon they were married, and so they began a life together of goat cheese pizza, goat cheese pasta, fresh salads with goat cheese on them, and to drink, of course, fresh sheep's milk. They were quite content, quite happy almost all of the time, except the princess often found herself thinking of her father and how much she missed him, and the shepherd could tell. And so towards the end of that first year, he said to his wife, the princess, perhaps we could have your father over for dinner. No, he'd never accept. He sent me away. He said I'm no longer his daughter. The shepherd said, well, 
He said you'd never set foot under his roof again, but that's no reason why he can't come here. And the princess thought about it. It did make sense. And so that day she wrote out an invitation to dinner Tuesday at eight o'clock and sent it up to the castle. And when the king received that invitation, he stormed and raged. She's not my daughter. I can't see her. But he did miss her. And he realized he had told her she would never set foot under his roof again, but that was no reason why he couldn't go to her house for dinner. And so that Tuesday at eight o'clock, he showed up right on time. The princess and the shepherd ushered him in, and they served him a delicious feast of goat cheese pizza and pasta with and some fresh salad with all over the top of it and to drink sheep's milk. In a big tumbler, it was a delicious feast, and the king was surprised at how much he enjoyed the evening, until it was time for dessert. And then the princess got up, and she went to the little cupboard in the wall, and she took out a big bowl of fresh fruit, set it on the table before the king. In it were green apples, and red apples, and three golden apples. The king was so furious when he saw those apples. He stood up and tipped his chair backward. He said, "You, shepherd, what are you, a thief or a murderer? Where did you get those apples? And what happened to the knights who deserved my daughter's hand?" The shepherd and the princess said nothing at all. They just took the king by each of his hands and led him out the front door and around to the back of the shepherd's hut, where there was an old fallen-down sheep shed, and the princess held the candle high. So that the king could see, the copper, and the silver, and the gold horse, all there in the candlelight, the king turned and looked at Jack with amazement. You won my daughter's heart, and her hand, and now you've won me as well. You must come and be part of my family. The king, the princess, and Jack, the shepherd. And so they lived happily ever after. The Princess on the Glass Hill, a story told for you by Ruth Halpern. Happy to bring it to you here on the Appleseed. It's been a fun hour. Not only that tale, but tales from Mitch Weiss and Martha Hamilton, like Why the Sun Comes Up When the Rooster Crows. And you heard a story about the Adirondack tall tale character Bill Greenfield, told by the great storyteller Joseph Bruchak. Of course, at the top of the hour, you heard Bigger, Badder, Better, a lesson in humility from Kirk Waller. And what a pleasure it was to chat with Lisa of Valentine Clark about Dulce de Leche. And of course, a pleasure to have you with us uh, for this hour of the Apple Sea. The hour was written by Alyssa Mingorance. Our audio engineer is Carly Robison. Our producer, Jeff Simpson. I'm Sam Payne. Such a pleasure to have you with us. And you can find us online at byuradio.org slash Appleseed. You'll find not only full hour-long episodes there, but also mini episodes. We call them Appleseed Extras, just a few minutes long, in case you only have a few minutes and you want to spend it with a great story, you can Google the Appleseed Podcast and subscribe. I'm Sam Payne, and I can't wait to be with you again right here on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by the Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.
Hey, it's me, Sam. Just one more quick thing before you go. We love having you with us on The Appleseed, and there's a lot more at BYU Radio that you'll enjoy. Top of Mind, The Lisa Show, Constant Wonder, all available as podcasts and at byuradio.org. Give a listen, yeah?